please bear with me again. Father, we thank you for bringing us together this morning to sit under the ministry of your word. Your word teaches us, Father, that your spirit is the one who does the work in us through your word to make us look more like your son, our Savior, Jesus. And so, Father, would you send the Holy Spirit, send him during this hour to do that work in us. And please, Father, as you've promised, would you lead us from glory to glory as we see what your word has to say about us and about your glorious plans for us as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I want to start this morning by uh, talking about what is widely considered a powerful and important idea. The influence of this idea spans all the way from ancient Greece to the modern phenomena of Disney and Oprah Winfrey. The Greek philosopher Aristotle was one of the earliest thinkers credited with articulating this idea in a way that goes something like this, to know yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Aristotle and others taught that self-knowledge was an important first step on the way to understanding others, and even that knowing oneself was necessary to understand any aspect of life and reality. Now, although the popularity of this idea has sort of ebbed and flowed throughout the ages, uh, it seems to have reached something of a climax in our own day. Some of you may be familiar with the Elsa character in Disney's Frozen film franchise. Uh, Elsa, having undertaken an agonizing search for answers to her most pressing questions, she ultimately realizes that the answer is in herself, that she is her own hero. And in her most recent film, she sings what seems to essentially be a love song to herself. Now, of course, the impulse to glorify self-understanding and self-affirmation has found expression outside of fairy tales as well. Uh, the other person I mentioned, sort of the world's go-to guru, Oprah Winfrey, has said that the foundational base of her success is knowing herself. She explains in her own words. She says, I started listening to what felt like the truth for me. And I started to just inside myself think, what do I really want to do? She continues, all of my best decisions have come because I was attuned to what really felt like the next right move for me. Now, as you can imagine, we could spend the better part of the morning looking at examples of the disastrous consequences of so-called self-discovery and self-love in the world around us. So let's not do that. <laughs> but I want to suggest to you this morning that all these people I've mentioned, from Aristotle to Oprah and Queen Elsa, they actually have something right. The question, who am I and why am I here, is one of the most important questions. I would say even that it's the second most important question a person can ask. Now, you might recall that when we started this series in Genesis back in February, I explained that Genesis was actually not the first book of the Bible written. The first book written was actually Job, and Job serves as something of an introduction to the rest of the Bible, and especially as it sets up the need for answers to life's most important questions. So as we saw last time from a brief survey of Job's narrative, life's number one most important question was established as who is God 
with relation to everything he's created. And we learned from that first part of Genesis 1 that God is independent, God is sovereign, and God is purposeful. Now this morning, to establish the need for the second most important question that can be asked, I want to look briefly at a few verses in Job chapter 7. Um, and you can feel free to turn there for a moment if you want. Job 7. Now, as you, as you probably know, Job is a famous sufferer, but I want to point out that what Job describes in chapter 7 is an experience that doesn't belong to him alone. Job begins by asking in verse 1 of chapter 7 about man in general. He asks this, Is not man forced to labor on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, so am I allotted months of vanity. Now think about this for a minute. Do you ever feel like this? Like your work, your days of work, like they all run together in a way that starts to make your existence feel like months of vanity? With the comforts, or you might even say the distractions, of his riches and his good life removed, this is what Job is seeing in chapter 7 as man's lot in life. That for man, it's a day-in, day-out grind, an existence of vanity. That life for man looks and feels like futility. And then, in view of his suffering in particular, Job starts wanting to point out to God that he, Job, is so insignificant that there's no way God should be picking on him. That's how he's perceiving his sufferings, is that God is picking on him. In verse 17 of chapter 7, we find Job asking our key question, what is man, Job asks. What is man that you magnify him? And that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment. Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor leave me alone until I swallow my spittle, which is to say, just until I die? Friends, what we're going to see here is that Job has actually identified two things correctly. First, he is small and insignificant in himself. And secondly, at the same time, God is making a big deal out of him. And what's Job's response? It's to ask, what is man? Aren't I too small, God, for you to take such notice of me? You see, when Job saw what seemed like the futility of his life, especially when some of his comforts were taken away, that led him to ask this important question. But unlike what Oprah and Disney and the whole world tells us, the answer is not to be found in ourselves. And as Job sits and gazes at his own navel in Job 7, even he comes to the wrong conclusion. Although he is small and insignificant in himself, that is not the only thing that's true about him. So to get the fundamental answer to the key question, what is man, we turn again to the book of Genesis. Our next section of text, starting with verse 26 of chapter 1, is where we find that answer. So go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles to Genesis 1, starting with verse 26. And please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 
Genesis 1, starting with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, I want to point out here at the beginning that although our text sort of straddles a chapter division, what we find here in these verses is a single main focus. This text teaches that God made man in his own image so that man might rule over God's entire creation. Now, perhaps we could put it more simply. Just as the first part of Genesis 1, as we saw last time, is about God as creator, this text is about man as created. Now, as we go through the text, we'll be looking at the rest of Moses' description of God's work in creating all things, which takes us through verse 3 of chapter 2. And then we'll zoom in with him on sort of a macro view of God's creation of man, starting in verse 4 of chapter 2. And as we do, what we'll find in this text are three key truths about man that help us answer those existential questions of who we are, why we are here, and what we must do. And you see these key truths on your outline. Number one, man is dust. Number two, 
man is God's image. And third and finally, man is to rule. So, starting with the first key truth about man. Man is dust. Look with me at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. The simple order of events communicated by just these first seven words begins to show us the problem with the idea of that to know ourselves, we must start by looking to ourselves. Let me just say again, that is not where you want to look. Rather than looking to yourself to understand who you are and where you come from, you must look back infinitely past yourself to the God who created you. And because God is who he is, we saw last time in his independence, God is eternal. The first thing you must realize about yourself is that you are created. You are finite. You have a beginning and God does not. And for that reason alone, you must look to God's word on the matter. Now, as I said, Moses zooms in for the macro view of the moment of our creation in chapter 2. And so to get a better sense for our creatureliness, we're going to jump ahead for a moment. So look with me down to verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. So first, we're created. And that certainly humbles us, at least in relation to God, who is eternal. But you see, that's not all that humbles us here. What did God create us from? God created us from the dust of the ground. And the relationship between man and the ground is even more significant than it appears when reading this text in English. You see, the word for ground and the word for man, those two words share the same root in Hebrew. And if that should seem like an unimportant technicality, notice that those words are used eight times in five verses, beginning with these words in verse 5. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. I think one commentator describes this connection vividly and helpfully when he writes using the Hebrew words, God made Adam out of the Adama to cultivate the Adama. Friends, in a true sense, this is our reality. We are dust, we are from the dust, and we are for the dust. And this is a reality that is reflected after the fall in the various ways the Bible talks about the implications of our fleeting nature as dust, starting with the curse itself in Genesis 3. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Hear also this example from Moses' prayer in Psalm 90, where he prays to God, Even from everlasting to everlasting you are God, you turn man back into dust. And this is a reality that Job understood, even though he didn't have the book of Genesis. Hear Job's words from Job chapter 10, and he's continuing here the lament that we started to read earlier. Job says this to God, Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? It's sort of unclear to Job at this point. But 
That's also the key to some of Elihu's efforts to help Job see the truth later in that book. Elihu says this to Job, If God should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. And this is the same reality alluded to in a text you might be more familiar with, Hebrews 1 verse 3, where it says that the Son upholds all things by the word of his power. Friends, if he should stop that sustaining work, everything would collapse and cease. Now, there are two important and very much related implications that you need to see from this truth that man is dust. The first is to see the massive neediness of the creation, including yourself. What could dust ever do for itself? But second, you must also see God's faithful and abundant provision to meet the need. Look back at Genesis 2 again, this time looking at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now something that should be noted here is that this is the first use in Genesis of God's covenant name, Yahweh, which is rendered in most of your Bibles as the Lord with all caps. Um, You'll catch me using Yahweh, the name of God, repeatedly here because I think it's good and important for us to speak His name. God gave it to us as sort of a sign of His covenant faithfulness to us. Now, in all of chapter 1 and the first verses of chapter 2, Moses used the word God, Hebrew, Elohim, 35 times. Each one of those 35 times, he used that one word by itself as the designation for God. Now, by contrast, starting here with verse 4 in chapter 2, God is used 11 times. That's how many times it appears in the rest of chapter 2. But every time, it's combined with Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, 11 times in the rest of chapter 2. Now, the significance is that with the major section break that occurs at the beginning of verse 4, the focus of the text shifts from God's powerful and commanding creation of all things, as we saw last time, to his intimate, sustaining, covenant, faithful relationship with his creation and with man in particular. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For Yahweh God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Observe here the important reality that in these two verses, it is God who is sustaining the earth. Moses is going out of his way to record the fact that God cared for the earth entirely apart from man. There was no man yet because God had not yet created him. Now look at verse 7 again. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Friends, this is perhaps the most important and ongoing provision we have from our Creator, the breath of life. As Elihu said, if God were to decide to call his breath back to himself, we would immediately cease to be. And then these next words, 
and man became a living being. From dust to a living being, simply from God breathing his own breath into our nostrils. Now, God's faithful provision for us doesn't stop there. Look at verses 8 and 9. Yahweh God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Beloved, do you see what you are when God's word tells you you are dust? More importantly, do you see how your faithful Father provides for you and sustains you? We sort of jumped ahead here to chapter 2 in order to fill in our understanding of just the first few words of our text. And part of the reason is that this is just the absolute fundamental thing for you to know about you, that you are dust. Everyone who has ever looked only to his or her own self and seen anything more than dust, any worth or power or greatness in themselves, or any thought, and this especially, any thought to justify self and condemn God, they have forgotten this truth. Now, in keeping with this, it'll be good to see that the idea of a humble sort of dust orientation becomes something of a biblical paradigm for humility and repentance, starting with Job's posture in chapter 42, where Job finally makes this confession. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Other examples include Abraham, who, although he was bold enough in faith to speak to God in Genesis 18, said this, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. And Jesus, in the Gospels, reinforces the necessity of this extreme humility and repentance. First, in Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then in John 12, he says, He who hates his life in this world he will keep it to eternal life. Friends, I can't possibly sound this note with too much alarm or with too much urgency. Look away from yourself. Look away from yourself and look to the one who created and sustains you. And friend, even if you don't know Christ savingly, even now he is the one filling your lungs with the breath of life. The moment he decides to call that breath back to himself, it's over for you. Man is dust. All that remains for any of you, for any one of us, is the same thing that remained for Job and for Abraham, for David, for Peter and Paul, and for every person across the millennia. See what you are and who it is that sustains you and repent. Come to him. God created you and he sustains you. Coming to him on his terms is your only option. You are dust, and dust cannot do anything for itself. However, this is not where our text leaves us this morning. Wonderfully and gloriously, 
dust is not the only thing that you are. And so, having been humbled to the dust, I hope, you might now prepare yourself to be lifted up to heaven. Because the second truth we find in this text that helps us understand man is, number two, man is God's image. Man is God's image. Look again at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, I'm compelled to, to admit up front that it feels a bit daunting to try to preach on the image of God and man in just one sermon. Considering the vast array of extremely relevant implications of this doctrine, from things like gender to race relations, from marriage to human rights, from suicide to abortion, and, and surely countless other issues, the number of good and important sermons that could be preached from this text is, is really a bit overwhelming. But this morning, so that we won't be here this afternoon, we'll proceed mainly by making some, some important observations within the text and then limiting ourselves mainly to those implications that we're able to see coming most directly from the text itself. So with that disclaimer in place, I'm not saying any of those other things aren't important, but we won't be able to hit them all. With that in place, put your eyes on verse 26 again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, the first observation that we want to make here is how Moses is breaking from a pattern that he's kept since verse 3. While he starts the same way, then God said, he changes here from the less personal, let there be, and he says that repeatedly, to the more personal, let us make. And of course, this reflects the account that we already looked at in chapter 2 of God personally forming the man and breathing into him. So that's one indicator of the distinction between the animals and man, is the change of the verb form there. And then, rather than the phrase, after its kind, which was used with regard to the creation of the plants and animals, God makes man in our image, after our likeness. Now these differences are intended to communicate two related truths to us. First, man is distinct from the animals, and secondly, man is like God. Now, it was important for Moses to emphasize man's distinction from the animals for a number of reasons, but most essentially to establish the truth that the life of a human is of eternally greater value than the life of an animal. If you compare verse 24 with verse 12 in chapter 1, you'll see that there was already a distinction made between animal and plant life, that whereas the earth brought forth vegetation in verse 12, in verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind. The prioritization of animal life is reflected, that's reflected here is consistent with the fact that uh, vegetation is given for food prior to the fall, but to kill an animal for food is allowed only after death enters the picture, along with sin. And accordingly, animal life is rightly regarded as worthy of compassion, as in Proverbs 12, verse 10, a righteous man has regard even for the life of his animal. However, the rightly elevated status of animals as being life in contrast with vegetation has lent itself to at least a couple of errors. First, more relevant to Israel is the worship of animals or of the image of animals. And this happened even in Moses' experience when Israel worshipped the golden calf in Exodus 32. Secondly, more common in our day 
is the error of seeing man as just another animal, and therefore elevating animal life or the wellness of the environment in importance to the same level as human life. So important takeaways here include do not worship animals, which is more relevant, of course, for Israel, and more relevant to our day, that we must maintain the biblical priority of human life over animal life, over the rest of the creation, because human life is created in the image of God. Now, there are more implications to draw from this contrast, but they'll be even clearer in light of the second emphasis in verse 26, that man is like God. Look at the next words in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, there's been a lot of debate historically as to how the words translated image and likeness here relate to each other and what they tell us about man. Uh, So hopefully I can make this really simple. The word image essentially means a visible representation, and it actually has a rather broad possible meaning. It's often used to refer to an idol. An image is an idol, or can be. But that word's possible meaning in this context is narrowed down helpfully by the second word, translated likeness, which simply describes a similarity. And so, with the second word qualifying the first, together they give us the full meaning Moses is communicating, that man is the physical representation of God and bears a resemblance to him. Or in other words, man is like God. Now, although it's good and helpful to acknowledge and to appreciate various ways in which we are like God and unlike the animals, like we have reason, we have personality, free will, we have self-consciousness, we have intelligence. None of these things is actually present here in the text. In terms of our similarity to God, there are two emphases here in these verses, and one of them is, is more subtle. The other, which is much more obvious, that'll be our final main point. So first, we find that man is like God in this way, that man is a unified plurality. Man is a unified plurality. You may recall from our last sermon in Genesis that I said the fact that God's name, Elohim, is plural in form, that this at least hints that God is more than one person. And actually there I pointed to verse 26 as further evidence of this. And the plurality evident in the words, let us make man in our image, that's immediately reinforced by what Moses writes in verse 27 about man. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, the exact same interplay between God as singular and God as plurality is reflected in the interplay in verse 27 between man as singular and man as plurality. Now, this reality of a unified plurality, it bears out most immediately in the relationship between Adam and Eve. And in every marriage since, as with the words recorded later in chapter 2, verse 24, the two become one flesh, unified plurality. But the idea of man as a unified plurality continues to work itself out in a variety of ways throughout the rest of the Bible. And this helps us to develop a doctrine known as corporate solidarity. According to this doctrine, people who share some established commonality are counted by God as a whole. And let me just state that again. 
people who share some established commonality are counted by God as a whole, unified plurality. Uh, We see this a lot in the Old Testament in kings' identification with their people as representatives or substitutes. Uh, We see this in the Canaanite conquest where kings are executed as representatives of their people. Uh, We see this uh, when David is referred to at his coronation as Israel's flesh and bone. Uh, And we see this when Saul's sons die in 2 Samuel 21 for his sins against the Gibeonites in order to satisfy God's justice. They're counted as one, representatives for the whole. In the New Testament, we find Paul's explanation of our identification with Adam in his sin in the garden. And likewise also, and this is a really important example, in the substitutionary nature of the atonement. One, Jesus, for the whole, everyone who's in Christ. But perhaps the most practical implication of this doctrine for us is found in how Paul talks about the unified whole of the church. Now, he does this both of the universal church, but especially of the local church. Paul's references to the church's unity in Christ exist in any number of texts, but listen to some of the striking language from 1 Corinthians 12 in particular. Paul writes, For the body is not one member, but many. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. God has so composed the body so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, unified whole, and individually members of it, plurality. Now, to sort of reset our focus, what I'm trying to draw out here are the implications for us of the fact that we are like God in being a unified plurality. You see, ever since the fall, we have failed over and over and over again to be a unified plurality the way God is. Starting most pointedly with Cain's murder of Abel, each of us has selfishly sought his or her own way. And so often at the expense of other people with whom we share this glory of being created in the image of God. And so if you take one thing away from our being made like God, especially with regard to his unified plurality, that he's at the same time one and three persons, it should be this, that you would seek to earnestly love one another and others. Said differently, love is the fulfillment of the law because the law seeks to point us back to our nature as created in God's image. God is love. There is no selfishness in Him at all. He overflows with a joyful love, and His desire is for us to overflow with His joyful love as we love and serve one another. And so in your marriage, in your parenting, but most of all in your devotion to Christ's body, in Paul's words from Galatians, while you have opportunity... Do good to, that is, love all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
Friends, man is God's image. Although we are dust, we have the unthinkably glorious privilege of being distinct from his creation and like him, including both in our plurality and in our unity with each other, and especially in our unity in Christ. Friends, love. Turn from your self-seeking and love your fellow man. You are all made in God's image. Now, as I mentioned, I've saved the clearest and most important implication of our creation in God's image for our final main point. Point number three, man is to rule. Man is to rule. Look again at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, the first thing to notice here is the absolute comprehensiveness of the God-given mandate for man to rule. He lists out every kind of life he created back in verses 20 to 25. Everything in the seas and everything on the dry land. And kids, if you haven't been paying attention, pay attention now. You might like this. The word translated birds of the sky, that may not be the best translation. Anyone, especially you kids, have any thought of what might have been flying in the sky other than birds when God first created? Exactly. Dinosaurs. Or more accurately, flying reptiles. Pterodactyls, pteranodons, and other types whose names I don't know how to say. (laughs) The Hebrew word here is actually more generic than birds, although there is a Hebrew word that is more specifically bird. That's not what Moses used here used here. With the words he uses here, he means to establish man's rule over everything that flies in the air. And so again, this is comprehensive. God here gives man to rule over everything he has created. Now, just as the first part of verse 26, man's creation in God's image, is expanded on in verse 27, similarly, this next part, man's dominion, which is the major expression of our creation in God's image, this idea is expanded on in verse 28. And it's expanded on specifically to describe how the mandate to rule was to be expressed. Look at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I have to say that it's interesting to see commentators wrestle with this. Is this a blessing or is it a command? And the answer is yes, it's both. Beloved, it's a tragedy that our impulse and our fallenness is to respond to God's commands as if they were anything less than a blessing. So let's take a look at these five imperatives, the five commands that form what is both a blessing and a duty for man man's creation mandate. The first three, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, all three of these can be taken together as one. Now first, it should be noted 
that there has never been a time where this component of our creation mandate was more critical than at this first moment when all of humanity comprised just one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. Even later, in Genesis 8 and 9, when God reiterates this command to Noah, there were, there were at that point more people to fulfill it, not just Noah and his wife, but his three sons and their wives also. And so, from a practical perspective, these first three commands to propagate human life, these have most immediate and practical application to Adam and Eve themselves. But commentators are correct to also see that this is clearly given by God as a general command to mankind. And uh, without delving into a lesson that I'd love to give on biblical hermeneutics and application of Old Testament texts in particular, I won't give that lecture now, but uh, I want to suggest to you that those commentators are correct who see that this command to fulfill this by being fruitful and multiplying, that it continues to be binding in its normal sense on us today. Um, I think one commentator says it helpfully when he says it this way. Human life, male and female, thus has great capacity and responsibility by virtue of being the image of God. First, humans may produce life, their own spiritual, physical life. If humans are to imitate God, then creating life is a basic part of that task. A man and a woman can produce a living soul. This privilege is part of their blessing from God, a blessing that includes divine enablement. For believers, childbirth is an act of worship, a sharing in the work of God, the one who created life. Now, as glorious as this reality is, I want to be careful to qualify it a little bit. I do find it necessary to address and emphasize this, that the command to be given fruit, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, that it applies to Christians now, especially that the priority of having kids continues to sink to new lows. The latest figures I could find from 2017 bear this out, that the fertility in the U.S. has continued to descend further and further below the re replacement rate since 1971. We're not producing enough children to replace the current population. So right now, at least in our country, we are not being faithful to fill the earth. Friends, that is clear disobedience to God's command, and the church must lead out in terms of repentance and faithfulness to God's clear calling. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir for the most part, so you're welcome for that affirmation. <clears throat> but I want to address the fact that there are exceptions to this blessing from the Lord also, and to offer some hope and some encouragement in this regard. For a variety of reasons, not everyone is given the gift and the responsibility to have children. Some people are single, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 as a gift in its own right. And some people, and this can be a heart-wrenching concern, and it's one that's addressed repeatedly in the pages of Scripture, some are not able to have children. Beloved, as in all painful and difficult circumstances that could tempt you to discontent, if this is your struggle, the Lord offers himself to you as the strength of your heart and your portion forever. If that's your struggle, find your hope there. 
He will satisfy you. Now, part of the way God does give hope in this regard, even to those unable to have children, actually relates quite directly to this call to see his people multiply and subdue the earth. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So while we must still rightly and understand and emphasize that the original intent and sense of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth does continue fully in force, it's also good and even exciting to see that the great hope for believers is that whether through parenting, through discipleship, evangelism, mission work, adoption, mercy ministry, or many other forms of Christian labor, we can make friends for ourselves who will receive us into heavenly dwellings. Friends, our fruitfulness is actually greater and more eternal and more certain in terms of true Christian discipleship than it is even in terms of having and raising children. And so, for all of us, in one or more of these ways, we continue to be called to submit to God's blessing and command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, just as we took those first three imperatives as a group, we find that the next two imperatives in verse 28 also combine to form a single thought. Subdue the earth and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, to put it simply, we are blessed and commanded here to subdue and to rule comprehensively over all of God's creation. And we find in the following verses, verses 29 through chapter 2, verse 3, that the creation we were given to rule was both good and complete. Verse 31 provides the climactic moment of the description of creation's goodness. Up to this point, God has observed of the things that he's made that they're good. But here, that pattern breaks. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The creation, everything God had made, and everything God had given man to rule was entirely and abundantly good. And it was also complete. Verse 1 of chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he ceased on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. God had completed his work of creation. Now, you may have noticed I substituted the word ceased for the word rest. The word Shabbat, which is probably translated word rest in your Bible, actually means cease more than rest as understood today. What's being described in the first three verses of chapter 2 is not that God enjoyed a rest as a remedy for exhaustion after a tiring week of work. Rather, what's described here is the enjoyment of accomplishment. It's the celebration of completion. You see, God wasn't taking a day off just to go back to the work of creation on Sunday. 
He was done. He was finished. The, the creation was complete. God had made man in his own image and crowned him with the privilege and responsibility to rule over a creation that was both good and complete, and he had endowed him with both the authority and the ability to fulfill that mandate. But we see from where we sit, don't we, that God, together with us, did enter back into labor after man sinned in Genesis 3. Only this time, God's labor was not the work of creation, but the work of recreation. And that work also was completed through Jesus' death and burial, such that the writer of Hebrews can speak of believers together with him as having ceased from our labors and entered into divine rest. But let me ask you, is that our experience? Does it always feel like we've entered that rest? When I asked earlier if any of you ever feel the way that Job did about man's task of laboring, that it feels tiresome and vain, I trust that many of us said yes, at least in our hearts. Why is that? I think it's because we often fail to keep our eyes on the glorious truths we're finding here in Genesis 1 and 2 about what man is. These truths are very much missing from Job's lament in Job 7. But in Psalm 8, David intentionally refers back to Job's lament, in a way correcting Job by pointing to the final two truths about man we've learned this morning, that man is God's image and man is to rule. David asks in verse 4 of Psalm 8, what is man? Now, of course, that's the same question Job asks, but watch here where he goes with it. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see, whereas Job had asked God, what am I that you should even think about me in order to pick on me? David is asking God, what am I that you should think about me to exalt me? You see, David had received in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 the same promise of the seed that had been given to Eve and to Abraham before him. David knew that the Messiah was going to be his descendant. And we know from other texts like Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 that David knew and meditated on some absolutely incredible truths about the Messiah. That the Messiah was God himself and that the Father would one day put all things, including all enmity and all enemies, under the Messiah's feet. Beloved, this is what makes sense of what David goes on to write in the rest of Psalm 8. And listen to the way the Hebrews writer renders it in Hebrews 2 with a little bit of commentary. But one has testified somewhere, speaking of David in Psalm 8, saying, What is man that you remember him, 
or the Son of Man, that you are concerned about him. For you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And here's the Hebrews writer's commentary. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And let me ask you, as David exalted in Psalm 8, do you think he actually believed that the whole creation was already in submission to him at that moment? The right answer is no. Friends, David's work was no different than Job's, and it was no different than ours. David was a man who knew he was appointed for glory, but who had to hide in caves from a man who was in some sense wrongfully on the throne, from a man who wanted to kill him. And David was a man who knew massive sin and failure, whose body wasted away through groaning all day long as he kept silent about his sin and refused to repent or confess it to God. David knew curse. David knew futility. David knew pain and disappointment and deep groaning for relief. But David also knew his greater son, Jesus, and placed his faith entirely in the one who was to come, in the one who has come, the one who commanded the creation with his very words, and it obeyed. The seas and the wind calmed, the diseases left, the wicked angels departed, the bodies healed, the doors opened, the hearts melted, the chains fell off. Beloved, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus, in his life on earth, gave us a stunning preview of what it is for man as the image of God to rule over God's creation. Man is dust. Make no mistake about that. But, and here's the twist, the people in the world who have made it popular to look to self for meaning and purpose and hope, those people haven't made too much of man. They've made too little of man. Man is made in God's image, and man is made to rule creation and mark it because it's absolutely certain, more certain than the floor beneath you. Man will rule creation just as was originally intended. This is our great hope. And if it hasn't yet been your hope, I invite you now, move your faith and your trust away from yourself. Move your faith to the one who will make all of this happen. Friend, with Job, admit that you had heard of him, but now your eye sees the one who will sit on his throne and have all things put into submission. And not only will that be a glorious thing for you to see, the very authority of the Son of Man will be a glorious thing for you to finally exercise in obedience to God's mandate. 
The Apostle John writes of that moment in Revelation 4, which is the same moment envisioned by Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel before him. This is the great hope of God's people through the ages. That moment, yet future, when the Son will be enthroned and will begin his rightful reign on earth where this all started. Of that same moment, John also writes these words to the church of Thyatira. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Beloved, what is given to the Messiah is given to us. We who have put our faith in him are both made and remade in God's image. And so our work is not vain. Our work is not futile. We will rule with him. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the way that this text both humbles us and exalts us. We thank you, Father, for creating us. And we thank you that when we rejected our creation mandate, you undertook to recreate us. Oh, Father, would you please seal these truths to our hearts, that although we are dust, we are also your image, and that our great and sure hope is that we will be restored with your Son to the noble task for which you created us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.